Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon. Today is Monday. I think we're halfway through. Officially. So, um, over lunch, there has been an accumulation of questions. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to do my best to deal with the questions, and then we'll have more time for discussion also this afternoon. Um, uh, how many people were not here on the weekend and are just here now? One, two, three. So, oh, that's right, of course. Um, so we've been studying a text called the Dhammapada. Do you have a copy? Very good. Yeah. And um, we're going to continue. I'd just like to start with uh, uh, a short uh, description of what, how meditation works. So um, the Buddha has a wonderful saying where he says, of all the footprints of all the species, the one with the greatest imprint is the elephant. Likewise, of all the different meditation practices, the one with the greatest imprint is meditation on impermanence. So, when you inhale and exhale, you'll notice that your attention wanders off and goes off anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's a good fantasy or a bad fantasy or the future or the past. Whatever your chitta, whatever the attention sticks to, um, your job is to notice how it sticks, how it gets entangled, and then come back again to the present moment using the breath. And then over time, you'll start to notice that whatever your attention sticks to is impermanent, is changing. And this is really important. And as your attention gets quieter and quieter, and your breath gets quieter, is also an important point, is that when you're sitting following the breath, as your breath gets quieter, your mind starts getting quieter. And then as soon as your mind gets busy again, your breath gets deeper. Did you know, have you noticed this? Yeah, and I'm not a scientist, I don't know, but my guess is that when your brain kicks up again and starts getting really busy, you need more oxygen. So maybe that's why your breath starts getting a little deeper again as your thoughts get busier. So there's this interesting relationship between the quality of the mind and the quality of the breath. And the quieter the breath gets, the quieter the mind gets. And as we talked about yesterday, when a thought arises, your job is not to let go of the thought. It's too related to the content of the thought. Your job is to notice clinging and let go of the clinging. Okay? And that's one way that meditation practice is very different than psychology. Which is that in psychology, when we say let go of something, 
we're very aware of what the thing is we're letting go of, right? We're, we're really, we want to know the content of it, where it came from, which parent, you know. But in meditation practice, we don't focus on the content, we just focus on the grasping. Okay? So, you're following your breath, and then the next, that's the first phase, following the breath. Letting the breath ground you in the present, and watching how as the breath gets quieter, the mind gets quieter. And then, you'll start to notice that everything your attention sticks to is impermanent, is changing. And it's easier to notice in a quiet space the arising of a thought than it is to notice the passing away of a thought. So in meditation practice, I encourage you to notice when thoughts are arising, to come back to the breath, but then also notice how the thought falls away. And you can, this is really good to do with sensations in the body. So notice you're sitting, and then some sensations arise. Notice the sensations, and then come back to your breathing, and then notice how the sensations change and pass away, and then new sensations come. So you're feeling the sensations changing. So insight into impermanence. Um, once you can do this with sensations, you can do this with moods and different mental states. So when various mental states arise, loneliness arises, laziness arises, a jealousy arises. Do any of you get any of these? Envy arises. So notice the arising of the mental state. Come back to the breathing. Mental state's still there. And then if you don't invest in it, it changes and it was just a dream. And it turns into powder. And the powder turns into nothing. And it passes away. And then notice the passing away of it. But I have to tell you that it's harder to notice the passing away. Because usually the mind's quickly looking for the next thing. Um, as the practice progresses, there's another move you can make that I don't talk about very much. Um, just because we're meditating for only two, well, you could argue three or four periods a day, but we're not doing long-term meditation in this retreat. But um, another thing that happens is instead of looking at what's arising, when your mind starts getting settled, you can turn your attention in the other direction and notice the awareness of awareness. Okay, so notice the quality of awareness that's aware. And this is really interesting. Because awareness doesn't seem to take the shape of what it's aware of. Does this make sense? Yeah, so most of the time there's consciousness of something. Always consciousness of something. Okay, Because the consciousness is focused this way. To the object that's arising, you see. But sometimes you can take the consciousness and turn it around. So instead of looking at the object, it's looking at the quality of awareness. So that the, the object of consciousness, instead of being the content, it turns awareness into the object. You see? And then there's awareness of awareness. And the awareness of awareness helps show us that there's something stable about awareness that's much more stable than the impermanent nature of the phenomena that are moving through the body. And maybe we'll get into this a little bit more tomorrow. But, but I think it's good sometimes to map this out a little bit um, so you get a sense of different ways of working uh, with your mind. Um, or maybe it's not even your mind. Why is it your mind? I mean, maybe it's just mind. Why does it have to be your mind that you're working with? 
If sadness is present, why does it have to be your sadness? Why can't it just be sadness? Or if your mind feels crazy, why does it have to be your mind being crazy? Why can't it just be crazy? I remember when I, we were talking at the break about psychotherapy. I remember sometimes working with people and having this feeling like together we were working on mind. Not their mind inside their head, inside their body, inside their world. And my mind over here, inside my head, inside my skin, inside my body. But just together we were working on mind. And that I had no idea what mind is. It's whatever's emerging between us. See? And then it's more helpful because then you can see more, more objectively. In meditation, like seeing sensations and imagining that this is not happening in your body, this is someone else's body. Like imagine what happens in your mental sphere is not your mental sphere, it's somebody else's mind. And you could do this in practice sometimes and just imagine this is somebody else's body. Yeah. 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 And you know, uh, Lou asked at the end of the morning about shavasana. You know, when you lie down in shavasana, you just lie down, and you let and you feel gravity. We worked on this the first couple days, right? Just feeling gravity, and then you leave your breath alone. So there's mindfulness of breathing without manipulating the breath. So first, you feel your breath in your belly. Your belly's going up and down. Everybody feels that when you're lying down. When I work with kids, I get them to put a stuffed, a stuffed animal on their belly. And I say, just notice the belly. Let, try and let the stuffy go up and down. And they really like that. And then I say, uh, now put the stuffy to the side and just feel with your hands going up and going down. And then I say, do you know what that is? And everybody says, that's my breathing. And I say, no, no, no. That's your best friend who's never going to leave you. And if you ever have a hard time, then that's who you turn to. Because you can count on them. And they really like this. Because it's true. And they know it's true. It's so close to you. What's that? We're on us too. I don't love sitting here yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you just put the Bible on. Yeah. <laughs> so um, then uh, you can just let your breath come and go so it's not so personal. And over time, um, you stop focusing on the breath in your belly, and then you focus on your breath in your nostrils. So it's not so much sensation happening, it's just more here. And then over time, you stop focusing on your breath in your nostrils, and you focus on your breathing outside your nostrils. You can still feel it outside your nostrils. So now there's very little sensation in your body. It's outside your body. You're not so focused on your body. And then you practice relaxing your breath so much that you're giving it back to life. Because this is pre preparation for death, right? is when you die, you're training, you're, you're pra so in Shavasana, when you die in Shavasana, you're practicing every day how to die, right? How, how do you die? And you're practicing giving your breath away. Because in the West, we always think that death is taking life away. But in uh, the practice that we do, death is uh, giving away, not taking away. It's because you don't die out of life. You die into life. When you die, you die back into life again. So when you're dying, you should have a heart that is generous so that you can give your breath back again to the wind, to the air. And then your body will give all the heat 
fire element back into the fire element. And then all the water will leave your body and you give all the water back to the water element. It's giving it back to life again. Lucky you, you got to have all these elements in this crazy experience of being alive. It's crazy. Isn't it amazing? We don't know what it is at all. We don't understand our life at all. And then when you die, you get to give it all back again to life. There's no death. Just giving it back again. So that's what you can work on in Shavasana. Is lie down as if this is your last ten minutes. And you're going to be very generous and give it all back again. So, then when you... Yes? I'm just... Um, I'm a little confused about this um, not working with the meditation. Just letting things happen and just letting them go. Mm. If you're in a, in a transition period in your life, if you're making big changes mm. and, and, uh, and things are happening in, in meditation, reactions, feelings, mm -hmm. and, mm. and you sit with them and you just yeah. experience them and let them go and you breathe. And, and yeah. I'm just confused if, if, if you always have to just let it go. For instance, if, if sadness appears, mm -hmm. uh, and you, you, you just sit with sadness. Maybe yeah. you cry, maybe yeah. whatever, you yeah. just, until it passes. Yeah. And then next day, sadness appears again. Yeah. And, and maybe this is going on for, for days. Or, yeah. and, and what I think, uh, what I tend to do is then say, okay, so where's the, where's all this sadness coming from? That's in uh -huh. me. Yeah. And then just, you know, sitting and breathing and kind of just asking myself or yeah. something inside of me, where is this coming from? Mm -hmm. And then waiting for my body to, to, to be completely quiet, which mm -hmm. is, I meditate every day, so it's not, mm -hmm. it gets quiet, mm -hmm. it also gets very busy sometimes, but it also gets very quiet. Yeah. And then I can sit with, something can come up uh, after maybe a half an hour or an experience from when I was a child or whatever, yes. or, or from my work, or just some experience that I had no idea that it had, that I had sadness about, or it just yeah. kind of appears and it's like... <sighs> right, yeah. And then I can let it go. Yeah. yeah. Um, but my question is, is it not okay to kind of investigate? Yeah, in absolutely. There's a place to investigate. Okay. Yeah. First of all, though, I think that for everyone who's learning meditation, don't use the meditation practice as a time to investigate. <laughs> but I think I as my... It's just when you have to let go and you let go and you let go and you let go of the feelings and you don't... You're not letting go of the feelings. You're letting go of clinging. And when you let go of clinging, often there's more feeling. You're not letting go of the feelings. Just the clinging. Nothing wrong with feelings. Something wrong with clinging. Nothing wrong with anger. But anger with clinging is a problem. There's nothing wrong with loneliness, but loneliness with longing is trouble. Right? It makes you go shopping. I've read this book by Jack Caulfield called yeah. Wise Heart. Yeah, great book. Um, and I don't know, that's something I wanted to ask you about. This also maybe getting a little confused from listening or talking or reading mm -hmm. from different teachers. Yeah. Uh, because with you, mm -hmm. what you, what I've been working with yeah. the precepts as well, is just this letting emotion or feeling yeah. or sensation or yeah. whatever arise and just sit with it and let it pass yes. on the cushion, but in real life yes. as well, and yeah. which is working really good. But then I read this book and it's um, he, he worked with the meditation in a different way on retreats. Mm -hmm. uh, Kind of not like um, do people see a psychiatrist or something, yeah. but but addressing certain issues. Um, yeah. We call it this well, vein thing. Uh, yeah. As we get deeper into this, mm -hmm. we'll get into this more. Okay. Yeah. 
Because I, I think if I can summarize the question, it's should we just keep letting go, letting go, letting go and being with our breath? Or is there a time to really look at what's coming up? And if you're going to look at it, what's the most skillful way to look at it? Yeah, that's my question. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to it, I promise. Okay? Yeah. But what tends to happen, this is why I'm talking a little bit about impermanence, is that we experience ourselves as a story moving towards a conclusion. And everything that happens in our life, we plug into this story that's moving towards an ending. Okay? And when you slow down and you start noticing how our moment-to-moment experience happens, you notice that the story is something we add on top of our experience. It's not built into our experience. And that's why someone asked this question uh, earlier to elaborate more on why so many gay people come to practice. So, I'll, I'll speak very shortly about that. What I'll say is that it seems to me that one of the core teachings in yoga and Buddhism, and especially what I emphasize in my teaching, is that when you start to look more closely at your experience, you see that your experience is a construction, partly that you're doing and partly just internalized stories, and that you start to see that the self is a story you're telling. Mm -hmm. It's fiction. Right? It's a performance. It's a piece of art that you're constantly performing. Right? In other words, it's not a fixed thing. You see, And I think young people, when they're working with their sexuality, especially if their sexuality goes against the dominant sexuality of the culture, then one of the things they're really looking at is their identity. How is my sexuality a part of my identity? And I think somebody who has to struggle with this, especially, especially if the environment is against them, is constantly thinking about their identity. Who am I? Who am I in relationship to the culture? Whether that's legally, whether that's in terms of their body, whether that's in terms of how they perform their gender, right? So that there's more sensitivity to themselves as a construction. Right? Much more focus on their identity. So then when you have a spiritual practice that doesn't come with a belief system, but starts by asking you to look at perception and look at the construction of identity, it's a really good fit. It's a really, really good fit. Because it's speaking a language that you've already been speaking to yourself, even though you didn't realize it. I mean, maybe some people realize it, but a lot of people don't realize it. So it's kind of a relief, like, oh my God, all of this talk that I've been having about who I am is actually part of a greater spiritual practice. It's not just like this thing I've been doing to be alive. This is actually a spiritual practice. Why is it a spiritual practice? Because you start to see that no matter what story you tell, it's not you. And unfortunately, a lot of people hear that and they say, oh, it's not me. There is no me. But that's a misunderstanding, I think, of these teachings. What the teaching is saying is that yourself is something that you should cultivate, actually. And that you should have many variations of who you are. You see? And the more variations, the better because then you won't stick to one version. And then when the self is so flexible that you're many, many characters, you see, there's less and less clinging. Right? There's no one way to be a man or a woman. Gender is not like that, you see. I mean, is anyone here a woman or a man? Really? I mean, you might say, oh yeah, I'm a woman because, you know, these are the parts I have. But 
Don't you feel sometimes like you're a man? Or even if you don't use those categories like male and female, don't you feel like wom- woman is like so many things, right? Sometimes it's like really, really feminine or what like our culture has decided in feminine. And sometimes it's really not. And then these other strange things happen, like you sit in meditation practice, right? and then your gender makes no difference at all. Right? Or you sit in meditation practice and your age has no impact. Because right? awareness doesn't have an age. Just like the self is not male or female. Like even when you say, I have my period. Do you guys get periods in Copenhagen? <laughs> yeah. Or I have to pee. I have to pee. But like the I doesn't have to pee. Yes, there's pee. <laughs> yeah, there's pee, but it like it doesn't belong to the the me. Doesn't have to pee. Doesn't even have a penis. <laughs> Which is where P comes from, by the way. If you're female, you didn't know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's not them, just doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did I answer the question? Is this making sense a little bit? Yeah. And I also think because our culture is so focused right now on the construction of our identity because we're living in a postmodern culture then these teachings just fit so beautifully right because they speak that same language and we're going to look at this in in uh, more detail um, can we jump into the text now Uh, let's go to line 46, because if we don't, we're never going to get through. <laughs> um, knowing this body is like foam, realizing its nature, a mirage, cutting out the blossoms of Mara, you go where the king of death can't see. So this is this, um, for those of you who weren't here, this must be um, confusing. <coughs> Uh, but yesterday we talked about Mara, which is the Buddhist equivalent of the devil. And we defined Mara as the energy that freezes us. In other words, it's the energy that makes us dead in our life. You had your hand up. I'm sorry, I forgot to... Oh, no, I, it's okay. Okay. I, was just, I, I just wanted to share my little story. Okay. Should we wait a little bit? Just so we can get through the text a bit? And then we'll, okay. So, um, one way of interpreting this is go where the king of death can't see. Right? So go to the place that doesn't die. And of course, our Judeo-Christian mind is like, oh, that's God. Right? But it's important to understand this more in, t- in terms of what's happening in your experience in a moment, is that in a moment where you're meeting what's arising out of habit, you're frozen. In other words, you're dead, right? And that's Mara, that's the devil, right? It's where you're stuck, you're dead. And in the moment you notice you're dead, do you see what I mean by dead here? It's not like cosmological. It's a moment of being dead, of being numb, of being stuck. And the moment you notice that, as soon as you notice it, you're not stuck. Right? So, like, that's the good news about all this. You don't have to be the person right now that you were one minute ago. You don't. So when something difficult arises in your life, you should know that you don't have to meet it the same way you met it last time. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I have certain patterns in my life and I feel like, oh my God, did I just do that again? And then you realize, well, you didn't do it exactly the same way. 
But you have an opportunity now to, to respond differently, more creatively. So this happens the more you realize that what moves through your body is a mirage, is like foam. Like today after lunch, Peter insisted. It was not me, it was Peter, that we go to a chocolate shop that begins with the word Peter. And in the shop, they have triangles, okay, filled with foam made from egg white, which is vegan. <laughs> and yeah, and I, and I looked at this triangle, it was so beautiful, and then um, I said, do you think I should get that? And Peter said, no, you should get the bigger one. <laughs> and I said, but isn't that going to be too much to eat? It was quite big. He said, no, no, it's very light. <laughs> So, Peter and I were at Peter's chocolate shop. <laughs> and inside this amazing chocolate was this foam, this amazing foam, right? So the foam, it seems real, seems like a triangle. You taste it and then it's gone. It was a mirage. It didn't even exist, so you can have another one. <laughs> And sometimes when we have very difficult emotions that come, we forget that it's just a mirage, it's just foam. We forget. And sometimes when we have very positive feelings come, we don't want to know that it's just a mirage, it's foam. You know, when you're going to have a little baby and you're pregnant, Everybody will come to you and say, really enjoy this because it's going to happen so fast. And it's like this cliche, but it's true. It's so true. It's like foam. And then your kid grows up and uh, you forget. You really forget. You forget so much. So you have to remember that because things are like foam, what happens is so precious because you can't hold on to it. So don't hold on to it. Because if you hold on to it, you wreck it. Because what's so beautiful about it is that it's impermanent. Like, uh, I have a friend who's a choreographer, and he always says, being a choreographer is the hardest art practice of all the art practices. Because when you make something, it's gone afterwards. You don't get to hold on to it. It's not like you wrote a play or you uh, wrote a book or, you know, I mean, now there's dance on film, of course, but um, to make something that goes away. My, my favorite artist is a performance artist named uh, Francis Alice. He's a Belgian. And he, he did this amazing piece in Mexico City where he took a huge block of ice. Uh, the title of it is When You Make Something, It Turns Into Nothing. And he took this massive block of ice. You can watch the video on YouTube. And he's there in his khaki pants and his white converse, sweating in his shirt in Mexico City. And he leans against the ice and just pushes it with all of his energy. And it, it pushes because it's hot, right? So the ice is melting. And all day through Mexico City, he pushes this big block of ice across uh, intersections. Some people notice, some people don't even notice. Gravel roads, downstairs. He waits at the light. And then sometimes he can't get it going, so someone will come and help him get it going. And he pushes it all day, this block of ice, until it gets smaller and smaller. And at the end of the film, he's like a little boy kicking the ice, a little ball of ice, kicking it like a kid down the road until it's just a puddle. The Zen teacher 
Shinru Suzuki says, a big block of ice makes a lot of water. Do you know that feeling? When you're, you're, you're stuck, you can't let go, and you're a big block of ice. And the only way to let go is tears. Right? And the more stiff you are, the more water will come. So, that's why we need to meditate on impermanence. Even when you think something is a big block of ice, or you experience yourself as a big block of ice, uh, it's impermanent. It's not real. Um, I wanted to share a story um, from uh, the Samyutta Nikaya um, called the Raja Sutta. Which, uh, Raja means king. So this is the, the sutra of the king. Sutta is the Pali word for sutra, Sanskrit. Um, so, can I tell you the story? Um, uh, on one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jeddah's Grove. Um, you can go there still, see where he taught. Um, near Anatta Pindika's monastery. And at the time, there was a king named uh, King Pasenadi. And he was with the queen uh, named Malika in their palace. Now, you should know the background. Uh, this was a really powerful king, very overweight and apparently quite ugly. And one day, he was being driven back to the, uh, the palace, and he heard behind a wall beautiful singing from a young girl. And so he asked the charioteer to stop, he got out, and he found the girl, and he fell in love with her. He spent the afternoon lying on her lap, his head on her lap. And then he said to her, will you be my queen? And she said, yes. And they moved into this palace together. So one morning, they're in the palace, and they're getting ready. I don't know, maybe she's putting on her makeup or something. Or he's putting on his makeup, I don't know. <laughs> and um, and um, well, just picture that, okay? You have this like overweight, kind of ugly king with a lot of power, who probably has this kind of low self-esteem. Probably the more power he has, the worse his self-esteem gets. Um, and this uh, gorgeous young girl, who's the queen, and um, he probably really wants her to say something nice to him. Do you ever have, does anybody here have a partner where they do this sometimes? Like you're feeling kind of ugly, so you say something in a way <laughs> to relieve your anxiety? Does anybody do this? Yeah. No? Yeah. Yeah. Like you put on a shirt and you say like, I'm not sure about this shirt. Even though you're really wanting them to say, I love you. <laughs> so anyways, he said to her, is there anyone more dear to you than yourself? Is there anyone more dear to you than yourself? And she says, uh, No, your majesty. There is nobody more dear to me than myself. And what about you, your majesty? Is there anyone more dear to you than yourself? And he says, uh, No, Malika. There's nobody more dear to me than myself. So it, it didn't work. <laughs> Because she said, oh, there's no one more dear to me. But she was expecting to flip it around. Where he's supposed to say, you are the most dear thing to me. But he doesn't say that. He says, there is nobody more. He's so honest. There is nobody more dear to me than myself. Then the king uh, left the palace and went to the Buddha, uh, sat to one side of him. And as he was sitting there, he said to the Buddha, just now I was together with Queen Malika in the upper palace. And I said to her, is there anyone more dear to you than yourself? And, he, and she said, no, there's no one more dear to me than myself. And then she asked me. And the response that came from me was, there is nobody more dear to me than myself. 
What do you think about this, Buddha? I love this story. Because actually, it's the truth. If you look closely in your experience, no matter how compassionate a person you are, you are the most dear. Right? We have idealistic, oh, you know, really, my mother is the most dear to me, or my kid is, I'll do anything for them. But really, the way we operate in the world, we're the most important. Aren't we? Don't you think? But there are persons you want to give your life for. For sure. But day to day, in terms of like the way we operate mentally, it's about me. And then, if you do a really good thing, that helps you feel really good <laughs> about yourself. Like, remember that time I helped my mom when she was sick? And you'll remind her, remember when I helped you when you were sick? <laughs> so, then, listen to what the Buddha says. It's not what you expect. Searching all directions with one's mind, one will find nobody dearer than oneself. Likewise, each person should hold him or herself most dear. And then you won't hurt others if you love yourself. Because you'll start to see that what other people care about the most is the continuity of their life. So then you won't kill other people. Because you see that what they care about most is their own safety. So then you'll be motivated to take care of your own self and protect other people's safety. Maybe this is how we should have relationships with each other. Is that the way I'm going to love you is that I am going to protect you. So that you have your own life. And I'm going to protect your life so that you can be a creative, flourishing person. Well, this is the vows we should make. We were talking about marriage. This is the vows we should make at marriage. My vow is that the way I'm going to love you is that I'm going to take really good care of myself so that I can protect your life. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it interesting the way the Buddha spun that around? He's like, yes. <laughs> Everyone holds themselves most dear. And you should. You should really love yourself. Because if you love yourself, then you'll take care of yourself. And then you won't hurt other people. That little flip at the end that we forget about all the time. So. And what makes it so difficult? Clinging. (laughs) So, then the Dhammapada says, A person immersed in gathering blossoms, her heart distracted, death sweeps them away. In other words, being... If someone's distracted all the time, just obsessed with getting the blossoms on everything, um... They get swept away like a great flood or like the parts of our city that are asleep. Like, go to the mall. Do you guys have malls here? Go to a shopping center. Go to H&M. And you'll see so many people asleep. Numb. Yeah? A person immersed, a person obsessed with always gathering the blossoms, their heart distracted, insatiable and sensual pleasures, all they have is death in life. They're dead to their life. Because all they want is just more sensual pleasure. Right? As a bee without harming the blossom, its color or its fragrance, takes its nectar and flies away, that's how you should go through a village. 
Isn't that gorgeous? Just like the way a bee comes into a flower, takes what it needs without harming the flower, this is how youth should go through the city. Focus not on the rudeness of other people or about what they've done or what they haven't done, but on what you have and haven't done for yourself. Isn't this so practical? Remember I was saying a couple days ago, one way to work with this text is find one sentence that kind of rings true for you or a sentence you really don't like and memorize it. And let that be your practice. This is a really good one. Focus not on the rudeness of others or what they have done or haven't done, but what on you, what you have or haven't done. Just like a blossom, bright-colored but scentless, a well-spoken word is fruitless when not carried out. Just like a blossom, bright-colored and full of scent, a well-spoken word is fruitful when carried out. So if you have something you want to say that's beneficial and you don't say it, it, there will be no fruit. And I, I think that we need to put those two sentences together because sometimes most of what comes out of our mouth is criticism of other people, which is related to criticism of ourselves. And if your main vocabulary is negative, then that's what you're putting out into the garden of the city, the garden of the body, the garden of the mind, the garden of the heart. That's what you're planting. So when you have something positive to say, you should say it. Let Maybe this should be our homework tonight. So it, it, yeah. it's, it's not that... When you say a word and you don't do it, yeah. I mean, you say if you have a nice word to say, you should say it. Yeah. But how is it related to you know you say something and then you do something else? Oh, you say one thing and you do something yeah, else. I mean, the action is not. The word is not followed by the action. Yeah. The right action. Yeah. Well, he's bringing the two together and saying. When a word comes from a heartfelt place, mm. where your, your action and your word is in line, yeah. it produces yeah. a good yeah. fruit. Yes. But when they're not in line, mm. there's no fruit that's yeah. produced. It's, it's, a good, yeah. Yeah. it's like um, there's studies done about if people smile with just their mouth, they are perceived as untrustworthy. Mm. So let me try <laughs> right? But if someone smiles with their mouth and their eyes, they're considered trustworthy. How many times a day do we do this? Where we're, we're, our face doesn't really match what we're really feeling. It's like passive aggressive a little bit. Yeah. You know, smiling, being present can often make you feel battered by everyone else out there who's maybe not behaving like yeah. that. So sometimes it's hard to protect. Like, it's not that you don't want to be open, but you want to protect. Mm. If you walk down the street smiling and taking everyone in, yeah. sometimes you just feel battered. Yeah. <laughs> People think you're crazy, but. Well, I mean, if you do walk down the street smiling and taking everyone in, someone's going to punch you. <laughs> it's not like a performance in that way. Um, but it's more like... Well, you know what? He's going to talk about this. He's going to talk about protecting yourself. So let's get to it. But, but you're right. You're right. There also has to be some protection. So we're going to talk about that. Can we keep going? Is, is everyone concentrating still, or are you thinking about the triangles? <laughs> I have a question. Oh, yeah. I hate to say it, but you mentioned homework. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought we could have some homework tonight. Homework tonight. Um, 
let's um, uh, whoever you're going to encounter tonight, like uh, maybe if it's just somebody that you buy groceries from, or um, if you go home and see uh, someone you live with, or you call a friend or something, let's try and notice something uh, uplifting about that person. And if you can actually feel it, say something. And if you don't really feel it, don't, don't say anything, but just see if you can notice it, right? And maybe you know you're feeling a little closed or down and you can't really say it, it's not true. But, it, but, but just try it on, like notice something about the way somebody does something. And then instead of keeping it to yourself, let's say something. Say something. Sometimes that's really hard, I find. Yeah. Because I feel myself yeah. like getting off. The criticism is much easier. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this, uh, when something positive is like, yeah. The heart is starting to live and yeah, coming so it's not being said sometimes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Why is that? I don't know. That's yeah. just how I feel yeah. sometimes. Not with everyone, but yeah. Yeah. But it's so interesting when when you do that and you're not thinking about it when you yeah. have at grocery so you're just yeah. saying it. He says, wow, I just said something good about these people I've never seen them before, yeah. and they're just shining up. Yeah. Because it's just happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what I'm going to do. There's a, there's a guy who I, I always go to get my groceries at this place called Irma. Do you know this place? Yeah. And, and the, there's always the same guy at the cash, and he knows that I speak English. Um, and that I don't know, like, the way you do things here. It's all different. Like, you have to buy the plastic bag, you know? So then today when I go in, I'm, I'm going to thank him for making it so easy for me. Because uh, he could make it difficult for me, right? He'd be like, oh, Canadian guy. But he makes it so easy for me. And I'm, like, a tiny bit nervous. I don't even notice it, but until I said this, now I realize I'm a little bit nervous sometimes going to the cash. Because every time I do one thing, I get it wrong. <laughs> because all the prompts when I put my credit card in are all not in English. Mm-hmm. They're all in Danish. Mm-hmm. So then I always, oh, always make a mistake. So I'm, I'm going to thank him for making it so easy for me. So, but watch, it's going to be his day off. <laughs> so, um, just as a heap of flowers, many garland strands can be made... Sorry, just as from a heap of flowers, many garland strands can be made. Even so, one born and mortal should do with what's, what, with what's born and is mortal. Many a skillful thing. In other words, flowers are born and they don't last very long. So, you should appreciate the flower and you should use the flower in a way. Or no, the flower uses itself in a way. Right? Like, look at these flowers. They are sitting here offering themselves so beautifully to us. And the flower is probably not thinking, I hope I'm doing a good job. <laughs> because purple over here is like really amazing. I don't know, maybe I'm not as, I'm bigger than purple. <laughs> but I'm just pink. And maybe I kind of secretly want to be purple. And I hope they like me. Because my parents, you know, they didn't always give me so much attention. And I really hope they like me. And I'm not too fat. <laughs> So how can you offer yourself like a flower? And Buddha is suggesting that maybe it has to do with impermanence. Maybe it has to do with the fact that um, you're going to die. And because you're going to die, you should explore ways of offering yourself. Because there's nothing else to do with your life. Except to offer it like a flower offers itself. Just offer what you have. You don't have to be perfect. 
you just have to offer what you have. And maybe you have something right now, and maybe in like six years, that's not going to be what you want to offer anymore. Or instead of thinking about it so big like that, maybe in every moment, you should treat that moment, or you should explore treating that moment, as an invitation to offer yourself. What can I offer in this situation? What can I offer? You go visit somebody who's dying. There's nothing to say to them. There's nothing to say. You just offer blankets, or a foot massage, or an ear for them to listen to. Or there's somebody who's upset that you know. Uh, You just go and just see what can be offered in the situation. Or maybe there's a family member who you never visit. Even though you like them, you're just so damn busy. You can never visit. Go one day and visit and just see how you can offer yourself. Maybe the thing they really want to do is just uh, go for a walk and they need your help to hold their elbow so they don't slip. Or maybe um, you really believe strongly in um, reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. And you don't know how to get involved. You know, you're buying light bulbs that are you know, more efficient. But then there's a big protest coming up. And you think, you know, I'm not the kind of person who goes out into the street and protests. But you know what? I'm just going to go and see how I can offer myself. Just see what it's like. In other words, whenever you feel a little bit reticent, whenever you have a little bit of fear, maybe this should be your response. What, what can, how can I offer myself in this situation? I don't really know what the, what the thing is to do. So, we finally finished one page. Um, comments or questions for five minutes, and then we're going to have a break. And we're all going to go get triangles. <laughs> Do you want to ask your question now that that was a oh, I mean, short story was, or comment? Or? It was not really a, a question. It, it was just a very small story. Sure. Okay. Just speak yeah. a little bit louder so I can hear you. It was all about the gay I used to be in a very creative, um, uh, with very creative people, where yeah. there is obviously lots of gays. Yeah. And um, one day, yeah, I think I found my man for my life, and we got married, and we had two kids. But something was missing out. Um, he couldn't make me feel like a woman, and that was such a strange thing because I. I always get told, oh, you are so thin, and then you are so nanny, nanny, nanny. So I was like, what's wrong here? Why do I feel so heavy balls in this relationship? <laughs> and then I, uh, we ended it, he got really upset. Yeah. But I knew, because he was cutting our lane, our grass, yeah. in um, boots, uh-huh. oil. Yeah. Very short leather pants, and he was fucking very and doing He spent so much attention in the mirror, and no matter how many times I said, "Oh, do you like this shirt? I don't really know about it." Yeah. <laughs> oh, but I have this shirt, and I really hot dog. I'm like, okay, so he is gay. And uh, we still love each other. We, uh-huh. When we separated, I think I knew better. I, I, I don't know. I knew, and he was still in doubt. Um, like you said, because the frames, the, everything has to fit in. He knew that he had to be a good father, a good husband. Yeah. That he could not go, um, go crazy. Yeah. 
recently he called our kids. They are now, uh, not recently, but four years ago. Yeah. He called them and he said, really, I need to uh, see you. It's, um, I have something very important to tell you. And my daughter, she was very upset because, of course, she thought that, oh my God, Daddy, he is so sick. <laughs> and finally, the days arrive, and she, they have this get together, and she calls me straight after. She goes, Oh, Mom, I'm so happy. She started crying. I'm so happy. You know what? Daddy's not dying, he's gay. Yeah. And um, all, of, all again, I had to, you know, tell him, hey, this is just sexuality, and now we think he has the coolest dad ever. So, oh. Yeah. That's so beautiful. The story is kind of sweet, but yeah. when are you a yeah. man and when are you a woman? I yeah. don't know. Yeah. My ex yeah. is really so mad, even though he's having sex with other men. Yeah. It doesn't make yeah. him a woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. So, that's just my story. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I mean, that story also, I think, points to something, which is like the importance of living your life and the courage to live your life. And then also to be careful because sometimes there's these hard-won things you have to go through to have your identity, but then not holding on to that also. Oh, now I'm gay. Well, don't hold on to that either. Right? So in some circumstance, that's an important thing to identify with. And in some circumstances, this is not important at all. You know? And a really good example of this is, and I'll end with this, which is that in Canada, there's a lawsuit happening that's very interesting, which is there's a young girl, she's 11 years old, and she wants to live her life as a boy. She doesn't identify with being a girl. And so her parents are very supportive of this. So they wanted to go on a holiday, so she needed a passport. So they went to get a passport, and she said, I don't want to be female on the passport. And her parents said, okay, well then we can you know, do what needs to be done legally so that you can be considered male. This is not a problem. There's a way to figure it out. But then she said, but I don't want to be male. Because... What happens if when I'm older, I don't want to be male, and I don't want to be female? So uh, this became a national story, and a lawyer was hired to work with the family. And it turns out that now the passport office is saying that because of the sophistication of security now, male and female are not useful on a passport. Because things are so sophisticated with security now, your gender is not an important part of how you can be identified and they're going to take it out so that, so that you can have an option of not being I think it's still in the courts but it looks like it's going that way that, that you don't have to say male or female this is a really fascinating thing really fascinating thing and very fascinating especially because the woman who is or the the male, she goes back and forth, who's talking about this is um, um, not wanting to choose uh, their gender. And I think this is really an interesting uh, story. Uh, we could talk about how this is a product of our times, blah, 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 blah. But the most important thing here in terms of its relation to what we're talking about is this ability not to grasp whether you're talking about your gender, or you're talking about money, or you're talking about another person, or you're talking about something that you identify as me, I am this. And as we go further into this, especially as we start to address the question around, uh, uh, your question around um, how do you investigate something, we'll start to see this play out more and more. So, uh, yes, one more comment on that. Uh, I was just thinking to uh, she was saying how about giving it's hard to say a compliment to somebody or it's easier to see the negative in things. Uh, and I was just thinking a little bit about it because I have a, I'm very much a, I'm quite an open person and 
you know, I say compliments to a lot of people if I see something. And uh, for a while it was very hard for me because I, I get so misunderstood and uh, people thought that now we should be best friends because I had given them a compliment or now we should start dating or, you know, and I, I, I really shut down for a period because, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to go out with you or anything. I just uh, said thank you for a nice treatment in the store or whatever. And um, I think that uh, the thing about giving compliments maybe is, you know, you, you explore yourself in a way because uh, then people want to grasp to you. Uh, and um, I, I, I just uh, think that when you criticize people, you, you keep them at a distance and you also have the power because then uh, they, everybody wants to be liked. So if I feel that you don't like me so much, I, I will try to work harder for, me, for you to like me. So um, I think that um, I, for, for myself, I just, uh, I've just decided that I am the way I am and then I must just draw a boundary if somebody misunderstands it. And sometimes I also wonder, oh, do they think that I maybe like them, like them? Because I, I don't, but it was just, you know. So, but then I just think, okay, maybe that's just their problem. I just say it with a clean heart, and then they must kind of what, think whatever they want. But yeah. I think there's a lot of power in this thing about giving compliments and giving criticism. And also, I've been thinking about when people are mad. I think it's such a funny thing. Now I'm mad, but people go around and be mad, and I think it's a kind of a power thing because when they get mad, then everybody else is working on, oh, how can I help so you will be glad again? Yeah. And then it's just quite funny to, to yeah. see it yeah. in, in that way, that, that just give up being mad because yeah. it's kind of silly. Which is a silly. Thank you. This seems like a good time to have a short break. Um, Ten minutes? <laughs>